Well, good morning. So, welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have uh, gathered to worship our great God. Let me draw your attention just to a few announcements. You may have noticed newspapers as you were coming in. That was not material for the sermon time, in case you got bored. But um, for the church members, you, this, uh, yesterday was uh, Miss Elisa's 99th birthday. And there's a big article in there about her. It's on the first section, very last page. So if anyone would like to have a copy of that key, uh, we encourage you to, uh, to pick that up. Uh, this Thursday is our next Sing Along with Amy, except it's Sing Along with Amy and Friends. So she's going to have some others here joining her Thursday night here. You will live stream it. Uh, you can access it. Just go to the church's Facebook page, or you can go to the church's website, which will then have a link for it as well to take you to YouTube. But we'll also send information about that as well. So Thursday night, uh, sing along with Amy at 7 o'clock. We're also going to be having a special grief share uh, session in November. You should see information about that in your bulletin. If you or if you know of someone who's lost a loved one uh, recently, this is an excellent um, support uh, event for them to come to. We encourage you to spread the word on that. And then ladies, note again the information about the conference coming up in November, and you can see more information about that in the narthex. Let's uh, prepare now our hearts for worship.
call to worship this morning comes from 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ransom that you've paid for us to buy us back from the slave market of sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet you came and lived that perfect life, what the law required. And you paid our penalty. You not only did that, Father, but you transferred and imputed your righteousness to us. We had none. Thank you for your all-sufficient sacrifice. We love you, Father, and ask that you would make your presence very real to us this morning here. That we might lift up Christ, that we might honor him. We might fix into you our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship. sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. He purchased not only reconciliation, but also an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. 
Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, we give you praise as the one who dwells in heaven, who is above this earth. We thank you that you have poured out your love upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ, that in his ransom upon that cross, we have the redemption from our sins. We have been purified uh, from the stains of our, of our sin and our guilt. That he has borne upon himself our sins and our punishment. We give you praise for such a great Savior. And we give you thanks and praise for your Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to dwell within us. And in your spirit, you are sanctifying us. You are cleansing us, causing us more and more to grow, to become like our Lord Jesus Christ. But we give you praise, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray, uh, our Father, that now as your people, as your children, as citizens of your kingdom, so we will honor your name, so we will serve your kingdom well, so we will do your will here upon this earth as it is in heaven. May your spirit continue that work within us so that we all the more will honor the name of our great God. We pray, our Father, that you would give to us today our daily bread. And we come to you beseeching that you will feed us with your word. Feed us with the reading of your word, the proclamation of your word. All the more that we might be strengthened in our faith. All the more that we might be strengthened as citizens of your kingdom, as children of your family. And we pray, our Father, for the many needs that there are. We pray for our nation, for the needs of our nation, particularly as we near the time of the elections. We pray, our Father, for uh, your spirit to be upon this land. We pray for peace among ourselves. We pray, our Father, for the, uh, your will to be carried out. We pray for each of us as citizens uh, of this land uh, to, to bear rightly the responsibility that we have to participate in our elections. And so we pray, that our Father, that we will, as we carry out being good citizens of this nation, all the more we will show what it is to be good citizens of your kingdom. We thank you, our Father, for our sister, Elise Edmonds, for her 99 years, in which she has not merely lived upon this earth, but that she has lived as your child and borne witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many of us can bear a testimony of her faithfulness to you, her encouragement to us. And so we give you thanks for her life. We pray, our Father, for our missionaries. We lift up the 
Hastings and their work that they do among refugees. And we uh, pray for a blessing upon their ministry of showing friendship and the love of Jesus Christ to others. We lift up particularly um, a young man who is in uh, desperate need of housing. We pray for your provisions uh, for him at this time. Our Father, we lift up our church before you, and we pray particularly for our pastoral search committee as they continue now to seek your will, to be guided by you, uh, to find the right shepherd uh, for this flock. And so we lift them before you, praying for wisdom and discernment as they seek to do your will. We pray, our Father, that you would forgive our debts. Our Father, we give you thanks for that all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in which we have received forgiveness. And yet we confess that we continue to transgress your laws, continue to fail, fail to love you with all of our strength and mind, continue to fail to love our neighbors ourselves. And so we, we ask for the forgiveness of our debts as a reminder to ourselves of continually of how we are before you and that we are dependent upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not want to, to have that feeling of estrangement. But again and again, we, we need to hear that good gospel word of forgiveness. So again, we confess our sins, that we might hear your forgiving word to us. Give us the same spirit as you, that we might forgive our debtors, that we might show them a love that covers a multitude of sins. And we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but all the more to protect us from the great tempter, uh, the evil one, protect us from the lures of this world and the fears of this world. We make this prayer acknowledging that before you is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
We may not have known this, but did you know, did you know that I am perfect? Now, that's the same reaction I get from my wife when I say that. But how else am I to understand our passage this morning? Because it's going to state plainly that Christ has perfected for all time someone like me. Now, we have been learning, as we've been going through Hebrews, particularly the last two chapters, we've learned that in the atonement, Christ has redeemed us, he has cleansed us, he has borne our sin, and he has borne our punishment. And now our our author kind of ups the claims on what he is saying that Christ has accomplished for us, and that is to perfect us. So to look with me at the text, he's going to set up his claim by stating what the old system of sacrifices failed to do. So again, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. Or uh, you can just pull out of your uh, bulletin, you'll see an insert, and it will have the full text there for you. Let me begin reading verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, our author here draws a conclusion that I think would not have occurred to most of us. At least it never occurred to me. He looks at the yearly sacrifices that are made. He's thinking of the Day of Atonement. And he concludes that because they're being made every year, they have failed to remove sins. Now, at least my conclusion would have been this. Well, no, they succeeded in removing the sins that had been committed, but, you know, people are going to continue to sin, so you've got to do it every year. I mean, what more could they do other than deal with past sin? Well, our author thinks they ought to have made people perfect. Indeed, that they would no longer, as he says, have any consciousness of sins. But he claims that far from removing sins, the sacrifices are only served as reminders of the sins that clung to the people. And then he, he just puts it out there bluntly. Bulls and goats, no matter how much blood they may shed, can accomplish nothing. Something else is needed. Now let's continue. Look with me uh, in verses uh, 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So to put it simply, Christ accomplished what bulls, goats, rams, sheep, whatever you want to put up there, what they could not. It's the sacrifice of his body alone, not theirs, that could accomplish the task of actually removing sin. He alone could accomplish the will of the Father to make the necessary atonement. Now again in here, you will note he uses perplexing language. He says there in verse 10 that we have been sanctified by Jesus' offering. He speaks as though our sanctification has already been completed. All right, let's move on here. We're going to come back to all of this stuff here. But in verse 11 through 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We see the same theme, the same point continues to be made. Christ makes but a single sacrifice, which not only removes past sins, but now he says it perfects for all time the people for whom he dies. And then, as if he wants to make the thought process even trickier for us, he describes these people for whom he's died as being sacrificed. So he says at one time they have been sanctified. Now he says they are being sanctified. All right, let's let's continue on as we just keep bringing up more and more complexing thoughts. Verses 15 to 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, There is no longer any offering for sin. And when he speaks of the Holy Spirit bearing witness, he's just a way of saying the Holy Spirit is is actually the real author of Scripture. And he has used Jeremiah the prophet to, uh, to speak the words that our author has just quoted. In fact, you may remember, this is the same quote that he used back in chapter 8. And he is saying here that the Holy Spirit effects change in the receivers of the new covenant. 
Whereas the Old Covenant, you had the law given and it was placed in a book. In the New Covenant, those laws are placed in the hearts of the receivers of that New Covenant so that they actually desire to do the will of God. But having said that, the primary point for his requoting Jeremiah is to emphasize what has happened to their sins. They're gone. They're forgotten. They are forgiven completely and forever. No more offering needs to be made. Now, our author has made very clear, hasn't he? I think his central point. Christ's one-time sacrifice on the cross is all sufficient to save us from all our sins for all time. And this is something we can say amen to. Because none of us doubt, do we, the sufficiency of Christ's work. But where our hesitation comes is what it actually says he claims about us. We can believe, yes, we are saved from our sins, but it's those other claims made. That's what's happened to us. It's really hard to to believe. Let me, let me, I'm going to repeat to you four statements you know, that, that, that came out in this text. Verse 1, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2, no longer have any consciousness of sins. Verse 10, have been sanctified. Verse 14, has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. I mean, let's think about this. I mean, how are we to understand ourselves as being made perfect? I mean, look, not even my grandchildren believe that I am perfect. Okay. And then, how is it that we can no longer say that we're conscious of sin? I mean, our understanding is that the evidence that someone is actually growing in, in sanctification is that they become more conscious of their sins. And how is it we can be regarded as having been sanctified when we're also taught that sanctification is a lifelong process? Let me take us through these questions. I'm going to start with the first one. How do we understand ourselves being made perfect? Well, let's recall our dilemma. God is holy. We are not. The result is that we cannot enter into his presence. We cannot draw near to God. Now, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross made the necessary atonement for us. Let's recall this. With his blood, he has redeemed us. That is, he's paid our ransom price. With his blood, he has purified us. He has cleansed us from the stain of sin. On that cross, he became our substitute. He bore our sins, and then he bore our punishment. Now, as wonderful as all of this is, still tells only half the story of what took place on the cross. In the other half, it receives less attention, and yet probably all the more startling what took place. On the cross, 
the great exchange took place. We focused on one part last week, the first part, where Christ bears our sins. But we need to understand that he not only took something from us, but he also gave us something as well. He took our sins, but he exchanged our sins. He gave to us his righteousness. You know, last week I quoted from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me read again that quote. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Well, actually, I did not quote the full verse. Let me quote the full statement. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the bearing our sins. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, we have talked before about our destiny of of glory, how we look to the day. We're, We're going to receive that great inheritance, and we're going to be glorified. We're not going to sin anymore. But we need to understand that on the cross, a change has already taken place. In Christ, our sins have been removed, and in exchange, we have received his righteousness. This is a critical note here. The righteousness that we now have, it is the righteousness of Christ. It belongs to him. Get ready. Let me give you another word to learn. That is imputation. Our sins were imputed to Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us. Last Sunday, I used the illustration of, the, of a ledger to talk about this. That you go to a ledger book, we see a transaction recording, and it shows the balance of our debts were transferred to Jesus. And I said that the balance then showed zero, you know, no debts. Not exactly accurate what I said. Here's what our balance actually shows. Not merely that our debts have been paid, but that our bank account has been filled with treasure. So much so that it can never be emptied. So we let, maybe we let the auditors get involved and they follow the money. And what are they going to find? Well, they will find that we did not earn this money. They will find that we did nothing to accumulate it. They will find that every penny was credited to our account from the labor and the savings of Jesus Christ. And all we did, the only thing we did, was to access it by faith. We believed in Jesus, we believed, we trusted in the work on the cross, and as a result, his righteousness was accounted to us. The Apostle Paul explains this process. And he uses, actually, Abraham as his case study. This is taken from Romans chapter 4. Let me read a few verses. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them, counted to us as well. So this is what imputation means, that having something counted as belonging to, and in this case the righteousness of Christ is counted as belonging to the believer in Christ. Now let, let me get us back now here to the, to the subject of perfection. If Christ, think about this, if Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, if his righteousness has been credited to our account, and it's God himself who's accredited it, well, what more needs to be added? Well, nothing. Our account is in perfect condition. There's nothing we can do. We cannot improve upon it. We certainly cannot add our works. We cannot add our improving moral character. We are perfectly squared up in our accounts. And we have been made perfect in terms of our status, our standing before God. Nothing more can be done. So we've answered the first question. How are we to understand being made perfect? Our account with God has been perfectly filled by Jesus, who has assigned his righteousness to us. Now I'm going to skip over to the third question. I'll come back to the second one. How can we be regarded as having been sanctified? especially when we're taught that sanctification is a lifelong process. Well, sanctification can have two shades of meaning in Scripture, and both of them having to do with holiness. We typically think of the process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is working in us. He's making us become more and more holy until that day it reaches to glorification. Well, there's another meaning of sanctification. And that's the act of being set apart for a holy purpose. We use the term consecration typically for this concept. And this idea was seen in the Old Testament ritual, again, with the sprinkling of blood. Whatever is sprinkled is cleansed. It is consecrated now for a holy purpose. It is set apart. This is what Peter has in mind when he's speaking of his readers of being sprinkled by the blood. And he will later in his book, he'll use the language from Exodus, that the language is used for the nation of Israel, and he will use it now for the people and say that they are a people who now are a holy nation. What he means by that is that they are people who are now set apart for God. It's that kind of sanctification that is a one-time complete work. We are not moved 
halfway into God's kingdom. There's no category for partial consecration. We're either set apart for God or we're not. We, uh, we may grow in holiness, but we do not grow in belonging to God's holy people. We're either in or we're out. And if we belong to Christ, we are in. So let's recap for a moment. We are made perfect in the sense that Christ's righteousness has been accredited to our status, our standing before God. When God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of his Son. And that righteousness is perfect. We have been sanctified and that we have been set apart through Christ so that we now belong to his holy nation and to his service. All right, that leaves one other question which still remains puzzling. How can it be said that we are no longer conscious of sins? I mean, as I've already noted here, the very evidence that somebody is actually even growing in sanctification is that we grow more sensitive to our sins. Well, our author's choice of wording will help us in understanding. It said back in, chapter, in verse 3, in these sacrifices, he's looking back at the Day of Atonement, there is a reminder of sins every year. Now, again, he's looking back at the Day of Atonement, that one time thing each year in which atonement is made for the sins of the people, for their removal. But even having said that, he refers to that day really as the day of reminder. Because it's a day in which it reminds the people of that sin that they keep committing. Well, it is a reminder to whom? Well, of course, to the people, for sure. They're, every year when they see the sacrifice taking place, they're reminded of the sins they keep committing. But more importantly, the sacrifice serves as a reminder to God. Or maybe a better way of saying it, it is a reminder to the people that God still remembers their sin. Keep that in mind. Look with me at verse 17, the way that verse concluded. The author says, then he adds, what? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now this is a reference, what he's thinking of here is the new covenant made by Jesus on behalf of his people. And he's saying that that sacrifice made by Jesus is so all-encompassing that his people's sins are not only paid for, not only have they been removed, but they are forgotten by God. You know, there are people who forgive an offense, and then there are people who who really, who really do forgive. No doubt you've had times in which you've offended a person who says they forgive you. Yeah, you know, well, they may forgive, but they really haven't forgotten what you've done. You know it remains on their minds, and it certainly remains heavily then on your conscience. 
And even if that person, let's say it's a friend, and that friend honestly tries to move on past it, but you know they haven't. And your relationship with that friend always keeps an uneasy feel to it. But then there's another person, maybe another friend, who who clearly has moved on from, from whatever the offense was. Indeed, it's as if the offense never occurred. And how do you feel when you're around it? It feels good. Now, you have not forgotten what you did, but the gracious manner in which that person offended just just now relates to you. It just removes that burden of guilt. And when you think about your guilt, when, when your own memory of it comes back, instead of just burdening you, you just feel all the more grateful to that person. And it frees you now to just sort of move on because that guilt no longer defines your relationship with that individual. Well, it's the same way with our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do we sin? Well, yes, we still sin. Does God look upon us as sinners? Well, no. I mean, how can he? How can he, if we have Christ's righteousness counted for, as ours? How can he, when we have now been set apart, as holy in Christ, as belonging to God. Now you might ask, well, what about the sins? Well, what sins? Let's go back to that ledger book. You know, you, you say, well, look, okay, I see that the balance shows empty, you know, but still on that ledger book are all the sins, all the debts that I have accumulated. Well, actually, No. Go back to that ledger. They're all been erased. There is no record of your sins. But you say, we can't pretend. We can't pretend that we have not sinned, and we certainly cannot pretend that we do not sin now. Well, it's not about pretending. It's all about accepting the all-sufficient sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ made on that cross for us. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were continual reminders of our sinful status. But Christ's sacrifice puts away the reminders of what we are guilty of. So that now, what we're continually reminded of is that one-time all-sufficient sacrifice that has cleansed us that has removed those sins away. You see, it's not about us. It's all about Christ. It's not about, well, you know, there's no making up for what we have done wrong. There's no trying to to win God back. No making amends. No doing penance. No uh, atoning for or trying to redeem oneself. Christ has done it all. Christ has perfectly redeemed us. Christ has perfectly transferred his righteousness over to us. Christ has perfectly sanctified us in that he has set us apart for himself. Christ has perfectly removed our sin so well 
that God remembers our sins no more. Isn't that a freeing thought? To know that God does not look down on you as a sinner who again and again you've disappointed him. To know that Jesus does not look at you kind of shaking his head and thinking, you know, why did he bother to die for you? Now, should we be bothered by our sins? Well, we should never be comfortable with our sin. We should repent. We should strive not to sin. But sin is no longer our identifying mark. We belong to Jesus, not to sin. We live under his pleasure, not his displeasure. This is the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. The atonement that redeems, that purifies, that bears our sin takes our punishment and exchanges for them the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we belong full stock and barrel to God. This is the status for all who are in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've ever waited to try to be good enough, whether to be saved or just to, to try to feel accepted by God, If you've been hesitant to place your trust in Jesus, give it up and come now. There's no need to be on the outside or to feel that you're on the outside. There's no need to to live under the weight of a guilty conscience. Jesus has done the work. Trust in him and receive this perfect gift of atonement. We give you praise, our God, for this perfect gift this great exchange taken, uh, taking place upon that cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, taking all of our sins upon him, giving to us his righteousness. We praise you for the release, the blessing, the joy, the peace that is in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. And we're going to be singing Not All the Blood of Beasts. I really want you to pay attention to the words that we sing and to see why I've chosen this text, how it fits so well to what we have just heard. Let's stand and sing together.
section, let me remind you that we have our usher who will usher you out, let you know when to leave, and also be reminded to have your mask as you leave till we get outside. Now receive the blessing of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.